All of Spiked's articles and podcasts and essays are free, and we want to keep it that way. But to do so, we ask our loyal supporters, if they can afford it, to chip in, ideally with a regular donation. It might not sound like much, but donating as little as £5 per month can have a transformative impact on our work. For less than the cost of about two copies of The Guardian these days, you can help Spikes become bigger and better and bolshier than ever. So if you like our work and want to support us, please do consider signing up. Just go to spiked-online.com and click on the big red donate button in the top right corner. Thanks so much. And now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me this week, as ever, we have Spiked's deputy editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the George Floyd protests, lockdown and democracy, and the policing of tasteless humour. It charges former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin with murder in the second degree for the death of George Floyd. It is your duty not to burn your own house down for anger with an enemy. It's time for us to stand up in George's name and say, get your knee off our necks. For the past week, protests and riots have been raging throughout the US following the brutal police killing of George Floyd in Minnesota last week. The police officer who suffocated Floyd has been charged with murder, while his fellow officers who stood by and did nothing have been charged with aiding and abetting murder. Still, the protests and the riots go on, as do many scenes of police brutality. Curfews have been imposed in a number of cities. President Trump, who was at one point forced to flee to his bunker, has threatened to send in the army. America seems out of control. Ella, what are your thoughts about this week? I mean, the first thing to say is that this kind of chaotic situation, as some of the pieces on Spike this week have reflected on, is sort of multifaceted. So there's a number of reasons why all of this is happening. Of course, first and foremost, the most important one is because of the murder of George Floyd. And that's what kicked it off. That's what most of these protests are protesting about. But there's also elements like a kind of pent up anger about racism in America that's being expressed and rightly so. There's also a kind of quasi celebratory aspect to it of a breaking of lockdown. As Sean Collins wrote on Spike this week, there's that element of it as well, a kind of bursting out of the restrictions that we've had. And that plays into, I think, the kind of chaotic atmosphere because people have just been cooped up and there's that sense of it as well. And there are good points and bad points to this protest. So obviously the mass response and our international response to police brutality and racism is to be applauded, is a good thing. Then on the other hand, there's lootings, there's violence, there's people acting like idiots. And that has been criticised as well. I think the point that I'd like to make is that I'm nervous about this turning into a good protester, bad protester debate. Because I think one is that it's early days in this very febrile atmosphere, this uh, sort of at the moment unorganised set of protests. Black Lives Matter is playing a role and a lot of the protests are centred around them. But there are these kind of spontaneous 
gatherings that are happening, things get out of hand. Not everyone is playing by the rule book. And I wouldn't want to write off the protests yet. There are some people doing kind of ridiculous white privilege displays of, you know, almost cultish like bowing down and people are basing themselves to say that they're in support of Black Lives Matter. But then, you know, it seems to me those are in the minority and there's a lot of very serious protests fronted by black and white people calling for very concrete demands one of them that they've won, like the prosecution of the other police officers that were alongside Derek Chauvin. And so it's a mixed bag. And one of the interesting things is there's been this real pushback against the message that was put out and lots of people applauded from, for example, Killer Mike, this rapper in Atlanta, who came up with this very impressive speech in Passenger Beach about why it was wrong that lootings in Atlanta that were targeting, in some cases, black neighborhoods, black businesses, and as he put it, kind of, you know, wrecking your own, destroying your own, and that they should be more focused, the response to it. But then I read this very interesting article in The Independent by Derman Springer, who said, well, you know, in Atlanta, less than 25% of homeowners are black. So when you talk about our city and protecting ours, then that isn't something that most black people realize. So I think I'm nervous about the sort of fixation on what looks like a good protest. And I think that we should, at this point, in these kind of early days of this, give a bit of room for the fact that there's basically a lot of shit swirling around in America, particularly. And George Floyd seems to be the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of discussions about racism in the police. There's good elements and there's bad elements to it. But in the whole, mass expressions of solidarity for the murder of a man at police hands, I think is a good thing tom no i think that's a really useful kind of summary of where we're at and i agree with a, with a lot of it i suppose what was quite kind of striking about the most recent days is kind of how the kind of political response to it and how it's kind of being discussed has started to generate because as ella said no one's really any in any disagreement about this particular killing you know it's something which was completely appalling you know anyone with a conscience or a pulse frankly would recognize that for what it was and it's good to see that you've seen these charges actually be brought the severity of them being increased and hopefully justice will be done i think my concern in relation to both these protests these riots and how they're being discussed is that it's kind of burnishing and, and stirring up a lot of the very negative aspects of kind of anti-racist activism or at least how we kind of talk about these issues one of which i think is the remarkable kind of pessimism, the kind of idea that this is just one part of kind of 400 years of kind of continuous subjugation, that it's kind of nothing has fundamentally changed. And whilst I get the kind of potency of that on a kind of rhetorical level, I think it can also be incredibly debilitating. I think it can kind of lend credence to this argument that you saw, even given by some elected officials like the governor of Minnesota, who refused to really condemn the rights on the basis that, you know, what do we expect? This is anger erupting after centuries. It can give a bit of a green light to that kind of response, which I don't think is positive, politically speaking, and it's certainly not positive for the business owners, many of them black and poor themselves in these communities who are having their lives trashed as a result of these riots getting out of hand. But I think also it kind of gets in the way of kind of looking at this issue clearly. You know, the issue of police brutality, race is a big part of it, but it's not the only part of it. You know, this is something which needs to be talked about in a far more kind of concrete, nuanced way. You know, there was the Roland Fryer study in 2016, which talks about whilst black people in America are far more likely to have physical run-ins with the police. They're far more likely to be roughed up when it comes to something like police shootings. 
you know, accounting for all contexts. It's actually kind of more of a balanced picture between black and white people. So to be able to actually find the ways to improve these pretty horrendous police practices that you see across the board, you need to be able to look at it in a clear-eyed way. But I also think that kind of profound kind of pessimism that tends to kind of cloud this, the idea that this is all just about America's kind of original sin being replayed out before our very eyes, is that I think it can also, as I said before, just become incredibly debilitating. The only thing you're left to do in that situation, if that is your read of the situation you'll find yourselves in, is to kind of just rage against it. It's not to look at how you can actually put together either reform or even far more radical change. It's just something that was ever thus. Um, And I think that's one thing that in the discussion of it is important to kind of tease out because I don't think that's helping people get to grips with what the problem is and also kind of find a way out of it. What's interesting is whatever form a lot of the protests are taking, whether it is the more kind of peaceful gatherings or whether it's the riots, there does seem to be a lack of political direction beyond the demands that have already been met for the arrest and the charging of the uh, these terrible, <laughs> wicked police officers. And, you know, part, a part of that is because anti-racism, as John McWhorter put it in an essay a few years ago, has become a kind of religion. And, you know, there's a religious aspect to this kind of racial fatalism where people don't want to, you know, accept that things were worse in the past and have got better. And, you know, then we could build on them in a progressive political way. Instead, you're seeing crowds of white people participating in these kind of prayer-like cause and response, you know, trying to absolve themselves of their whiteness, their, you know, original sin effectively. Or you see, you know, white people kneeling and begging for forgiveness for hundreds of years of racism, which again, doesn't solve any problems, but does give the people involved this kind of ecstasy of, of absolution. You know, it, it does have this very religious rather than political feel a lot of the time. And that's a bit of a danger because it needs to get pushed back into, you know, what policies are going to improve people's lives? How can we make communities safer? How can we make communities stronger and more economically resilient and things like that? And that a lot of that is getting lost in this. Ella? This is why the focus on white privilege, which is this, you know, this new framework for dealing with anti-racist politics is such a problem in my view. I mean, you used to talk about in the civil rights movement, we talk about black oppression and black power. And now we're talking about white privilege and really the center stage of all of this is white people. It's what white people mm-hmm. should do, how they should feel, how they should express themselves. That's the important part of this discussion, which seems to be completely topsy-turvy. But I mean, more importantly, in order to move forward, because as Tom says, this isn't about a kind of original sin. Black men aren't getting shot in the street or chased down for flirting with white women any longer. But there is still lasting problems like the fact that they're, you know, people live in unofficially segregated neighborhoods all across America. There's deep economic divides, all these things that we know. But in order to combat that, expressing it through the prism of white privilege and it about just you know the, the answer is just for white people to sit down and educate themselves is ridiculous. Mm. And it also deepens the genuinely, you know, vile, racist, prejudiced views that some Americans still hold. So I wrote an article this week for Spiked about the interaction with Christopher Cooper, the bird watcher, and the dog walker who called the police on him and lied and said that he was attacking her. 
And um, most of the responses I got from that were people saying he was attacking her. He was a threat to her. Haven't you read the full transcript? I mean, yes, I have read the full transcript and he wasn't. The worst thing he did was try and goad her dog away with some dog treats. But it's the more that you assert this kind of politics of privilege over an actual kind of honest discussion about race disparities, it digs people into those ingrained identity politics trenches that they have because, you know, there's, I've never heard so much talk about anti-white bigotry and you just think, what? So there's, Mm. it, it ingrains the kind of the most destructive parts of identity politics that an anti-racist outlook that wants to free black people and create equality should be railing against. And, you know, you say anything like that and you risk getting told that you're racist, that you can't see your privilege, that you're being stubborn, all of these things. But I think people have to be brave and say the way that this discussion is being framed around privilege instead of the concrete acts of oppression or injustice means that this row is going to continue for a very long time. It's just amazing how individualised the discussion is. You know, even the if you look at all of the corporates who are taking part in this Black Lives Matter blackout and putting their black squares on Instagram, all of the messages are about how we as individuals must do better to recognise our our racism and things like that. There, there seems to be no discussion of how this is a kind of social or political issue. It's it's almost as if you know if you change enough mm. attitudes, if enough people renounce their privilege, then we'll be fine. I'm, I'm not sure that anyone actually wants us to be fine in that, in, in those circumstances. A lot of these brands are quite happy to keep things the way they are and to, um, you know, put a nice gloss on the status quo (laughs) rather than Mm. argue for deep structural change. And maybe that's why they take this kind of individualist approach. Tom? No, I completely agree with that. I also think the speed with which you saw all of these big companies come out to kind of make this very similar response to embrace this kind of work anti-racist politics, I think speaks to how fundamentally unthreatening to the status quo this kind of politics is. The fact that you have, you know, Ben and Jerry's, Apple, Spotify, whoever, being very able to mouth these platitudes, I think speaks to the fact that they are just platitudes. They don't really go anywhere. They don't really point to any Mm. kind of fundamental change, which it might be quite difficult for a company to put their neck on the line by supporting. It just becomes um, a kind of ritual that um, different people engage in. And I think coming back to that point you made about, and John McWhorter's frame of this as religion, I think it's a really useful way to, to look at it because on the one hand, it speaks to how kind of distorted our discussion of a lot of this stuff is, but it also speaks to the, of how kind of stilted and stunted it is. Because the thing about original mm. sin is you can accept that you've got original sin. He makes this point. You know, you accept the, the fact that you are kind of fallen, but it doesn't mean that you actually ever get over it in the same way you kind of have with this kind of new gospel of anti-racism, the idea that white supremacy is this kind of stain on the nation. It's only ever really talked about as something that America has to come to terms to. There's never any kind of political program attached to it. And I think the thing you end up with is that the only people who really benefit from this way of looking at society are precisely those white liberals, those companies, those corporations who can kind of get off on the fact that they are kind of reckoning with their own privilege, that they are reckoning with their own status, that they're feeling terribly guilty. They can enjoy that, but it doesn't get anyone else anywhere. You're listening to the Spiked podcast. Spiked has no subscriptions and no paywalls. All of our content is free. We rely on the generosity of our listeners and readers to keep us going and growing. For those of you who already donate to Spiked, we can't thank you enough. It really means a lot to the team. If you haven't already, then why not consider giving Spiked a donation? You can make a one-off payment or give monthly by going to spiked-online.com. 
What does lockdown mean for democracy? MPs have returned to Westminster this week, but because of social distancing rules, they were forced into long queues to cast their votes. For four weeks during the outbreak, Parliament was suspended entirely. Other aspects of our democratic rights have been seriously curtailed, thanks to the lockdown. Limits to the size of gatherings make protests and strikes de facto illegal, although certain protests seem to have been given tacit approval by police and politicians. Tom, what are your thoughts on this question? Well, I just found the kind of responses from MPs this week as they were all complaining um, and getting increasingly exasperated about having to queue up in order to go through the division lobbies to vote or to go through the commons to vote rather. You know, this kind of kilometre long re-smog conger as it became known was really quite <laughs> revealing because here they were really, you know, crime blue murder about this. There's one SNP MP called Martin Day who called it the death of UK democracy. And then when you <laughs> consider all of the genuine affronts to democracy that has come over the course of the past few weeks. They're just talking absolute nonsense. As you say, at the height of the crisis, the end of March, Parliament actually passes this emergency motion to suspend Parliament early, you know, kind of proroguing itself, in a sense. It did that pretty willingly. You've got the Coronavirus Act, um, which handed huge powers to the government, huge restrictions on civil liberties. That basically bounced through with very little debate and no formal vote. You've got the regulations brought in to enforce the lockdown, which were both brought in and are being updated just by the kind of waving of Matt Hancock's pen at this point, he even extended the period through which mm. um, he has to review them in the past week. We've heard very little about that so far, and yet so much so about the fact that they had to queue up for a little while <laughs> in order to go through Parliament <laughs> to vote. And I think it just speaks to kind of how, when the chips are down, as they certainly felt like they were at the beginning of this crisis, how little those kind of core principles about maintaining liberty in society, about maintaining democratic accountability, about maintaining scrutiny, which I think is almost more important at a time of crisis um, than in other times, certainly, when so much is on the line, how willing MPs were to chuck that all the way. So to, to see them complain about the Reese mog conga this week, I thought was um, pretty rich, frankly. Ella? It's quite clear that none of them have ever experience a queue like that. I mean, they should come up and come to the shops with me in Morrison's in Stamford Hill. It regularly has a <laughs> kilometre long conquer line. It's just <laughs> par for the course in lockdown Britain. But as Tom says, it was a real farce. And I mean, you know, you can say in this day and age, is it not possible for them to, instead of wasting all this time, have some kind of technological mechanism that meant that this wasn't necessary? I sympathise with the, I think, the quite important point that Jacob Rees-Mogg made, which was things like this have to be taken seriously. It's not the same when you're virtual voting. You know, he said it's, mm. you can go on a sunny walk and it doesn't have the same kind of gravitas. And I agree with that, actually, that people who have such political power should take it very seriously and it should be a formalised process. But I mean, you know, there's a happy medium in these strange times. And it, it did look like this kind of pantomime that was a bit ridiculous. But the important point, as Tom says, is what, what actually is the meaning of democracy for these people? I mean, a large part of what most of them are still saying, whether they say it virtually or actually when they're in the chamber, is to maintain this period of basically a pause on democracy for voters. There's still a huge amount of fear-mongering around the breaking of lockdown. They're still very reticent about any kind of discussion of how and when we might come back to normal life because they believe that the public aren't to be trusted with the kind of sensible decisions that might come with an easing of the lockdown. And so, you know, in, in any way that they express their democracy in the practical aspect of it, they clearly don't have any respect for us, the people who make up democracy. And, you know, we know this. This has happened for the last four or five years. We know what politicians have been like throughout the Brexit process. And it's 
easy to forget that all of that background context is there because we're in this new world where before the murder of George Floyd, the only thing anyone was talking about was coronavirus, but that these issues are very much still a problem in that our vast majority of our MPs have an issue with democracy and still haven't bought into the idea that it is the public that makes politics rather than themselves. So they weren't exactly covering themselves in glory on either side of this debate. Definitely. And I think, well, I think the limitations of the kind of online parliament were highlighted by the fact that even the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, accidentally mm. cast a vote in the wrong way, voting against his own government, which is, is not a mistake that you can make when uh, traipsing through those uh, those lobbies. Tom? Did you want to come in? It's been a useful point this week to kind of reflect on where a lot of our kind of civil liberties and our democratic freedoms are at, because obviously there's so much that we've had to give up over the course of this lockdown process. And so much has been kind of revealed about how kind of blasé a lot of these politicians are about kind of some of these core democratic freedoms, like the right to protest, which they completely waved away. But I actually thought that um, we haven't really talked about it in the previous mm. section, but the um, UK Black Lives Matter protests that we saw in Hyde Park and Trafalgar Square and elsewhere, the double standards in relation to that, I thought was really striking in this regard. So of course, you saw thousands of people on the streets at those protests. You actually saw Labour MPs, Barry Gardner, for instance, Dawn Butler as well, people who had actually very specifically kind of scorned the government for easing lockdown or scorn Dominic Cummings for breaking lockdown, openly encouraging people to go to these protests, you know, um, having a go at anyone who criticised them for potentially being a um, a super spreader event. Um, and Barry Gardner, in fact, going along and taking the knee himself. And I thought that was really, really interesting because that's kind of revealed <laughs> something that we knew kind of existed for a long time amongst many people is that they only really support the right to protest when it's protests that they agree with. Otherwise, it doesn't really matter. So yeah. you can have a tiny little protest a few weeks ago in Hyde Park of kind of lockdown conspiracy theorists, bless them, um, and they actually get short shrift by the police and a lot of moral condemnation from these same people. Yet when it's a protest that you agree with, all of the kind of investment that all these people had in lockdown completely frittered away. But I think it just demonstrated that core kind of contradiction, which is that, yes, pe these people are in favour of democracy. Yes, these people are in favour of the right to protest, but only when it's for things they agree with, basically. Ella? Tom's exactly right. And I mean, I remember a week ago on Spiked, we had an article about the fact that the, you know, it's the public that's actually leading the response to the lockdown and not politicians and that people are sort of making judgments and maybe on the quiet easing up their way in which they manage this lockdown. And whatever you think of the politics of the protests that we've already discussed, one thing I was heartened by was this display of judgment calls by largely young people who made a decision to say that they weren't going to be risk averse anymore on this issue that they cared about. They were going to break lockdown. And, you know, there's an element of that where you think, yeah, people, people aren't so completely petrified by the threat of this virus that they are willing to give up certain things that are very important to them. Instead of taking that positive aspect, you just know that people like Barry Gardner have knotted themselves into a kind of this ridiculous bad faith discussion where they know that they can't take the piss out of the fact that Alok Sharma now potentially has the virus and that Boris Johnson might have to go into self-isolation again because of the fact that they've spread it around the commons because they've been out on the protests. And rather than just being honest and saying, look, it's quite obvious that people are starting to react 
badly to this lockdown and are starting to free themselves up and perhaps we might have to take our lead from the public and you know there's block parties happening in Halston and all these kind of things are going on they're being quite obstinate about it and it's just going to be interesting to see how that hypocrisy plays out especially within Labour and the SNP who have been the worst kind of scaremongers around this. Yeah I mean it is quite kind of dangerous because you, you do need them to just come out and admit that the virus is behind us now but no one will because they know that the threat of the virus can be used to tell people to order them around and tell them that they cannot protest against this or they cannot see XYZ relative or they cannot go to the shops that they'd like to go to or they cannot go on holiday. So admitting that actually it's fine to go out in a large gathering would drain the political class of all of its authority that's suddenly been vested in it over this crisis period. And, you know, that means that we I think we are going to see a lot more hypocrisy over the next few weeks. And we are in the dangerous situation, you know, almost reminiscent of kind of communist dictatorship where we have state approved protests and nothing else in the same way that we've had the state approved clap every week as our one little bit of social interaction. Perhaps we'll have a state approved bending of the knee every other day or something like that in, in, in recognition of this particular cause. So really, you know, obviously fair play to the protesters. I hope it's the case that they're leading us out of lockdown, but I'm fearing for the worst on that front. You're listening to The Spiked Podcast. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher and more. And if your provider allows you to, why not give us a rating and a review while you're there? It really helps new listeners find the show. Two British teenagers have been arrested for mocking the murder of George Floyd on Snapchat. The young men can be seen grinning as one kneels on the other's neck. The photo was captioned, Police Brutality. A police statement confirmed that the picture is being treated as a hate crime and the young men have been arrested on suspicion of sending communications causing anxiety and distress. Tom, what do you make of the reaction to this rather tasteless joke? Well, if anything, it's the lack of reaction that alarms me so much. So obviously this was a story in the mirror this week, but it hasn't really been picked up anywhere else at all. And yet I think the content of what's happened is really, really alarming. You've basically got a couple of teenagers being um, arrested for making a kind of sick joke, an unpleasant joke. And the fact that in Britain in the 21st century, this is how we deal with teenagers who make unpleasant jokes is pretty alarming. It's, it's worth remembering that actually kind of the policing of young people being idiots and saying disgusting things on the internet is actually kind of it's mm. quite a long history at this point. You know, it was back in 2012, there was this big case, Liam Stacey, he was a student at Swansea University. He put, he was drunk. He put out these kind of series of pretty vile kind of racist tweets about the on-pitch collapse of Fabrice Mwamba. And he was um, jailed for 56 days as a result of that. Same year as that, there was a, a teenager in Lancashire who was jailed for making sick jokes about Madeleine McCann, who incidentally is back in the news at the moment. 2014, there was this 21-year-old called Jake Newsom. He went on Facebook and made some disgusting comments about a teacher in Leeds who had recently been murdered. You know, you see these kind of cases again and again and again. They almost kind of fail to make the news a lot of the time these days. There's something which is almost just 
a kind of like spurious special interest story over here. Whereas the kind of fundamentals of what's happening there is the fact that basically the state are being brought in to, to punish and in some cases jail young people because they say disgusting things, even though young people say disgusting things all the time. That's kind of part of what they do is alarming. And it's alarming that that, that doesn't make more headline news than it does, even at a time when we've got so much more to talk about. Ella. How are you supposed to deal with these things? I mean, they're 18 and 19, which, you know, they're adults, but it's a young age. It's a stupid age. And if you think back to the, I mean, I hope none of us engaged in racist mocking when we were young, but your judgment for and your perception of how these things will go down is not the same as when you're in your late 20s. They put it out publicly on Snapchat. They deserve to be mocked, criticized, shamed for it. They should be very ashamed for it. But as Tom says, what, you know, what does arresting them or having them reprimanded by the police do in terms of changing their viewpoint? Because this is the whole, the whole reasoning behind hate crime is that you clamp down on it through the police. But it seems bizarre that you're having this discussion about support for an expansion of police powers into people's private lives, which is, you know, into the way people interact with each other and freedom of speech. At the same time that you have righteous mass criticism of police overreach and, you know, in the scenes that we're seeing across America of police being incredibly heavy handed on protests. And the bottom line is you have to defend free speech, whether the person is saying a vile thing or something that you completely agree with. And we've already talked about the fact that the culture war that's underlying the question of racism and race relations in America and the UK, part of it is to do with this sort of sense that you can't say anything about racism and you can't make jokes and you, you know, you're censored because it, it's supposed to protect black people and protect minorities. And of course that leads to more of this kind of crap because these boys know what they were doing was wrong. What they were trying to do is get a reaction. And the more you censor people, the more they look for getting a reaction. It's like the Katie Hopkins phenomenon. So rather than dealing with this as a two idiots who just need to be told and, you know, to use that word that annoys me a lot of the time, educated, um, perhaps about <laughs> why that what they did was wrong. It turns into this sort of external investigation by the authorities. I mean, you would think that the police have better things to do than to tick off two teenagers, but this ultimately comes down to a discussion about freedom of speech. As ugly as these defences can be, it's not pleasant to defend two teenagers who've made a joke about a murder that we all watched for nine minutes. But that's what defending free speech entails. It's not often not pretty. And, and often, I mean, you know, <laughs> given that they're now basically using teenage obnoxiousness as a, as a reason to prosecute people, you can see all kinds of completely innocent people getting dragged through the net here. And it should really alarm us when young people letting off steam or young people just being, you know, boys being boys or whatever you want to say, suddenly find themselves coming into interaction with the law. I mean, that is that is a real problem. One case it's reminded me of is the case of Chelsea Russell, who was an autistic teenager who had done nothing more than basically post some rap lyrics on her Instagram. And, you know, they basically quoted the N-word and that was enough for a police officer to be offended by them. And, you know, she was dragged through the courts, given a several hundred pound fine, given an ankle tag. It took a while, but later on appeal, the case was crushed and the judge said, you know, this is completely tyrannical and should never have come to court in the first place. But mm. it's astonishing how many completely innocent people can get dragged through the net when you when you have such a, a low standard, you know, is something offensive? Does something make people anxious? Does it 
just create tensions. It, you know, it's, it's completely unreasonable to criminalize these things. Ella. Well, it was just the point about anxiety and distress. I mean, this isn't, it's not even framed in terms of race first and foremost or racism. It's about causing an anxiety and distress. And you can, I mean, where is the end point for that? Are we not allowed to make jokes about, you know, people being ugly? Are we not, what, are we, there are certain times at which you might want to cause anxiety and distress. Certain aspects of political discussion causes anxiety and distress, especially if you're having your own views challenged. I mean, we've all felt that. And so this leaves it, the, the door completely wide open for the expansion of hate crime, which we have always said was going to happen into just this broad sweeping legislation that allows our every interaction to be um, policed. I mean, the chance against Dominic Cummings outside his house caused him anxiety and distress. Are the police going to go and find all his neighbours and investigate them for hate crime? No, but you know the logic follows that they would have to if you support this idea of policing something as ridiculous as stress. I mean, it's like sounds old fashioned, but whatever happened to the argument of people getting a backbone? And when it comes to the point about racism, I mean, there is a very serious discussion about racism happening at this time, which is why it's particularly upsetting that these boys decided to make this joke. But fighting racism is going to be full of anxiety and distress. You're going to meet people that have disgusting views. And how do you deal with that? If you continuously call the police to do the work for you, then not going to solve anything. People have to deal with the fact that confronting things that are distressing is part of being a political person. I think just quickly on the question of the police, it's like we need to recognise that what we're effectively doing here is calling the police and the authorities in to police humour. That's really mm. what a lot of this is. Some of the cases that we've talked about previously, some are worse than others. Some are more just explicitly racist, disgusting, disrespectful. But some of them are just young people telling sick jokes. You know, that was the thing that was quite popular five or ten years ago. You know, Frankie Boyle built a career on it. But it's kind of like you're now just inviting some policemen to kind of decide what jokes you are and aren't allowed to tell as well as who is and isn't allowed to tell them in a kind of strange sort of way, which mm. I think we should be really alarmed by. And I just think, it's a point we made in this podcast many times, but you have so many times where the police complain about having a lack of resources, so many times over many years that they complain about being called out to deal with some kind of neighbourhood disagreement rather than actually tackling the big stuff. I can't think of anything more trivial, I can't think of anything more than a kind of cat-up-a-tree type kind of call-out issue than some teenagers making an unpleasant joke. And I, what's so striking about all of this, as we've talked about many times, is just the fact that increasingly the police actually embrace this role they kind of want to take it on they see it as a kind of moral legitimacy that they're kind of gaining through fighting racism through going after people for making jokes but i think we just need to push back harder and harder against it because this sort of thing just really shouldn't be normal you've been listening to the spike podcast for more Spike content, don't forget to keep visiting us at spiked-online.com where you can also make a donation or treat yourself to something from our shop.